Father, we thank you for that cross. We thank you for the cross where Christ died, that it genuinely, fully satisfied your wrath against us, truly made us at one with you, reconciling us so that we can have eternal, blessed communion with you. So, Lord, bless us as we seek to further that joy and further that fellowship with you by reading and studying your word. Bless us as we think about these themes of the gospel, of the cross, the atonement. Call us to sanctification through these things. And call, Lord, those who don't know you to salvation. Bring them to knowledge and faith of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is always such a blessing to be with you. We just sang an old song written by a pastor named Samuel J. Stone in 1866, The Church's One Foundation. Some of you know that song or remember that song from growing up. Did you think about those words, particularly in that first verse as we sang it? The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her, and for her life He died. Lyrics like that come from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. It says this, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Similar idea can be found in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, that says, By his blood Christ ransomed a people for God, literally out from every tribe and language and people and nation. Similar even to the verse we studied a long time ago back in Matthew chapter 1, where the angel comes to, Dave, uh, comes to Joseph and tells him to name the baby Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Even in Isaiah 53, as we've looked at a lot in the last few weeks, thinking about the atonement, talking about the anguish and torment of Jesus on the cross, that by so de- doing he has not made, not all, but many people, to be righteous, which is similar to Matthew 20, 28, that Jesus gave His life not as a ransom for all, but as a ransom for many. Well, these verses and others we're going to touch on today have caused people to ask the question, did Jesus pay for everyone's sin, each and every last human sin on the cross, or did He pay for the sins merely or simply of those who would believe? the many spoken of, or the bride of Christ. The first option that Jesus paid for the sin of each and every last human to ever live, that is a doctrine called the doctrine of general atonement. The other idea, the contrasting idea, is that Jesus only paid for the sins of many, namely the, the elect, those who believe, and that doctrine is usually called limited atonement. I know what many of you are thinking at this point. Today would be a good day to sleep through a sermon. Don't do it. If it's in the Bible, it's relevant and applicable. It's pertinent to you and me. As we wrapped up several weeks on the atonement, 
I asked and many of you responded requesting that I take today to talk about this idea of limited or general atonement. Which one is it? And I want to show you the meaning here and hope you see how this truth can actually apply to your life and perhaps even help you follow Christ better. Probably the best place to start is that Old Testament chapter that we referred to over and over in our study the last few weeks over the atonement. The account of Matthew's death from an Old Testament perspective. That's a priceless passage. Really, Isaiah chapter 53 is sort of like the Romans 1 through 8 of the Old Testament. This really sets up the whole message of today. So let's turn to Isaiah together. We're going to look at a number of different passages, and I'm not going to ask that you flip through all of these. You may not have time as we move to a number of passages, but this is sort of the anchor passage we're going to begin with. Technically, this section begins up, this, the song here written by Isaiah, out of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins up in 52 verse 13. But let's read the familiar portion of that song, which is the entire chapter of 53. Follow along as I read aloud. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nor beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, it, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. I realized this week after starting and scrapping a number of 
sermons. It's going to be really hard to preach a one-off sermon on the doctrine of limited atonement. This is all woven together in a category of doctrines called the doctrines of grace. These are the doctrines which delineate what God does for us in terms of salvation in His gracious and saving work. And I'm going to do my best, so here we go. Let's start with some history and some theology. Back at the time of the Reformation, and as far as I know still today, the Roman Catholic Church agreed with the Protestants that we are saved ultimately by God's grace. It is God's grace that we are saved. Now, what is that grace and how we receive that grace is where Catholics and Protestants differ and where the Protestants during the time of the Reformation began to see there was a, some fault lines in Catholic theology. The Catholic Church taught that grace comes to humans in two basic forms. The first is what is called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is the grace that God has given to every human He's a, it's a grace that God has granted to every human to ever live, and that grace is the ability and the free will to choose God to have faith and believe in Jesus. This is prevenient grace. It's often ca called the grace of universal enablement. Humans may be really, really bad, and they may need salvation, but because of God's prevenient grace, the Catholic Church teaches, they are endowed with the free will ability to choose and believe and have faith in Jesus for salvation. I want to be clear here, the Catholic Church does not teach or did not teach prevenient grace can save anyone. It simply is the ability and the freedom to choose God and salvation. In order to be saved, according to the Catholic Church of that era, a person needs a second kind of grace. To make it clear, I'll call it infused grace. Now, infused grace is necessary and indeed causes salvation. It's what makes you good. It's what makes you righteous. It what's make you, makes you obedient. It what, what's, it's what gives you a righteous standing before God. It is tied to the cross in that only by in the, this infused grace that you are justified and can go to heaven. I call it infused grace because, especially in the time of the Reformation, the church held that only the Catholic Church could grant salvation by infusing grace to people. And how do they do that? How do they give people this grace, this substance that would say, well, they give it through the sacraments. It has to be infused. It has to be poured into people by the gracious act of a pope through the work of the church. Baptize a baby, and that baby is infused with the grace of salvation. Go to Mass, get married by the church, become a priest, do last rites. These, among the other sacraments, are the ways in which the church infuses a person with saving grace. That the church is the authority on making you saved. If you, based on prevenient grace, decided to come after God and attend church and be baptized and take the sacrament, they will, through the authority of the Pope, infuse saving grace the grace of salvation to you. Now, the Reformers came along and said these two ideas of grace are not biblical. 
First of all, it directly contradicts what the Bible teaches about the condition of man before salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that before salvation we are neutral or good or at least good enough to choose God. No, the Bible says that we are dead in sin, we are enemies of God, we are slaves to the prince of the power of this world, Satan, and we do His will and only His will always. And so before we can even choose God, we need spiritual life to be breathed into us by God and an action known as regeneration, which then compels us inexorably to have faith in Christ and follow Him with repentance. Also, the Reformer said, the Bible doesn't say that we, out of our own willpower, decide to be saved and then are. No, John famously said in John 1 that salvation is not by the will of man, but by the will of God. James said, His own will He brought us forth. It's made us alive by the word of truth. Furthermore, the Reformer said, as important as God's institution, the church is, the church prelates led by the Pope do not have the ability to infuse saving grace on people. No activity, no ritual, no matter how meaningful, no matter how uh, derived, maybe even from Scripture, no matter how important, no matter how traditional, only God can save a soul. So looking at their Bibles, they said salvation is ultimately and fully a gracious act of God. Sure, man's will, man's volition is involved. Sure, man chooses God, but that is predicated on God doing something in their hearts. God says, I, you did not choose me, I chose you. We love Him because He first loved us. And even as a Christian, as you look back at your own salvation, you must come to the conclusion that ultimately it wasn't me. God had to do a work in my heart to compel me, to push me toward Christ, and then enable me to turn to Him in faith and repentance. So all the steps along the way, along this golden chain of salvation, are all of God's grace. God's grace isn't some substance that is given to me by church prelates. God's grace is a, is a characteristic of God's holiness. It's a, it's a characteristic of who He is, that He would come down into the world and change hearts, and He's in us both for the willing and working of good, His good pleasure. So He changes my will. He lets me hear the gospel with fresh ears and see it with fresh eyes and then compels me to have faith and repent and follow Jesus. Again, sure... Man's choice and volition are involved, but those choices are predicated on God's choice of them and His subsequent work in, his, in their lives to save them. Well, now this is how the church and the original Catholic church in the Reformation time and the Reformers, the Protestant Reformers, differed. Well, the Reformation carried on for some time, and at some point before the turn of the next century, so from the 15s to the 1600s, sometime before the 1600s, there arose a popular Protestant preacher in the Dutch Reformed Church. He was also a professor. So in the Netherlands, his name was Jacob Arminius. And he came along and he said, you know, I agree with my Reformed brethren on many things, including about the Pope and the church and some other things, but I'm officially recanting and want to agree with Catholics on some of the things, particularly surrounding the issue of prevenient grace. Eventually, Arminius and his followers came up with 
five points. They called them five remonstrants. First and foremost, he said, there is such a thing as prevenient grace. We agree with the Catholic Church. This gives man the ability of total free will, just like what the Catholic Church teaches. So we agree with the Catholic Church on that. Second thing that Arminius said is if God then chooses a person to save him, it is only because that person had first chosen God. God sort of reacts in terms of his choice of a person, his election, he reacts to what man has chosen. Thirdly, he said, you know, I, I generally agree with the Reformed position on total depravity, that man is dead in sin. But I don't think he's entirely dead. As a famous theologian, John Cleese said, it's just a flesh wound. Not quite dead, just almost there. Man is injured, but again, because of prevenient grace, he is able to choose God and be saved. Fourthly, he said, because of all of this, this is dependent on man's choosing of God. If at some point a, a person stopped choosing God, he can lose his salvation. It's called conditional security. Because the security depends on his choices and his willpower, not on what God has done. And then fifthly, he said, because of all this, what that means is on the cross, Jesus accomplished potential atonement for each and every last human being on earth. Every sin of every person was on Christ on the cross. He paid for all of them, but that payment is not actualized until a person chooses to have faith. Now, you don't have to remember all that. It won't be on the quiz. You simply need to know that this point in history is the genesis of the doctrine of general atonement within the Protestant tradition. And this position, this idea of general atonement is indeed the, the default position of most Christians, particularly in America. This is what most people believe. They don't agree with the original Protestants, the original Reformers. They agree with Jacobus Arminius, with Arminianism. This is what most Christians, perhaps you even, growing up in church, perhaps this is what you grew up believing as well. Now, we do not believe that or teach that here, General Atonement here at NBC. It's not an issue of fellowship. Some of you have been here years and not heard me ever even mention this idea of limited or general atonement. That's not an issue of fellowship. We don't make a big stink about it. You're free to be here. You're free to operate here, be a part of the church, believe in general atonement, but you need to carry with you all along that you're, you know that you're wrong in believing general atonement. <laughs> We're right. I like the terms potential atonement, which would be, represent the general atonement side, versus actual atonement. I think these do a better job articulating the position. Potential atonement focuses on this, this positive reality. God has paid for everyone's sins, and all you have to do is make a decision, and it will activate that atonement. It will make it mean something and actually activate the power of that atonement in your life. Jesus' blood does not actually pay for you to go to heaven or else everyone would be in heaven. Jesus' blood just creates 
a, a potentiality, a potentiality that you have to choose to activate by believing and following Jesus. That's potential atonement. Actual atonement says, or limited atonement, says that it actually paid, when Jesus died on the cross, it actually paid for the sins of His people. It actually paid for the sins of the elect, meaning everyone who believes. The atonement is actual, it is real. For everyone who would believe. So that's why I call it actual. It's something that's actual. Well, what I'd like to do this morning is give you three points. A scriptural case for actual atonement. Then a little bit of time, the theological case for actual atonement, which overlaps with the first one, of course. And then I want to take a few moments in the end to talk about the practical case for actual atonement. Why does this all matter? Isn't this just like arguing how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Or is this something that actually matters in my life? Why would, John, would you give a Sunday preaching about it? Well, it's because it being in the Bible, I do believe it matters, and I believe it can change the way you live. All right, number one, the scriptural case for actual atonement. The scriptural case for actual atonement. Let's just start with that passage I read in Isaiah 53. I want to draw your attention to some of the language there. Look at verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, We have turned everyone to His own way. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Look down to verse 11. This is where it overlaps the subject matter from last week satisfactory nature of the atonement. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, meaning God, shall see and be satisfied. It says, he shall bear their iniquities. What we have there is propitiation, right? Total, full, actual satisfaction of God's justice against our sin. It is complete. God is satisfied. His wrath is no more. Sin is gone, and there is at-one-ment. There is atonement. There is reconciliation. All sins, all iniquity, the penalty has been executed upon Christ, not upon us. It is paid in full. The question is, who's the people here? Who, whose sin is paid for? Whose sin is propitiated? Who's the our, 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 us, we, we, us? Is this universal atonement? Is this the song of the world? Everyone in the whole world, each and every last person? Is this the song they're singing? Verse 11, second phrase, By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Verse 12 at the end, He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, it can't be many and all at the same time. The many is a sampling of the all. It's a portion of the all. What you discover if you read this, especially back up in chapter 52, is that these are the Israelites who initially rejected the Savior and now who believe in the Savior and they're looking back at Christ and they're singing this song. They understood that by God's regenerating power, He has moved them, He has convicted them to believe the gospel. They have believed and they've understood that when he died, he paid for their sin. Not because of any choice or any righteousness that they made, but because of the mercy of God. Sproul, as he reads this, he calls this definite 
redemption. There's no chance in this. This is a reality. There's no potential about this. This is a reality. Their sins were definitely paid for, and they were definitely redeemed. What this tells us about the extent of the atonement is that it covered the believers here, only those whom God had brought to Himself. So what the servant Jesus did on the cross actually saved them. It didn't just create a potentiality. It actually satisfied God's wrath. This language here in Isaiah 53 is not about potentialities or possibilities or hypotheticals or theoreticals. This is actuals. This actually took place. It didn't just create a potentiality. The biggest problem with general atonement or potential atonement is that solely is the justice of God. God punishes His sin for His Son for their sin, and then He turns right around for those who don't believe and punishes them again for the exact same sin. You're telling me God poured out His wrath on a son fully knowing that He would punish them again for the same sins? May it never be. God is infinitely just. He's not unjust. This sacrifice truly and fully paid for the sins of the many. It atoned for their sin to purchase their redemption and reconcile them to God. It didn't just create a potentiality. This goes right along with Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. I read it earlier, looking at, at 20. This is speaking about Joseph, the father of Jesus, Jesus, as he found out that Mary was having a baby. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus... For He will save His people from their sins. Who's He come to save? Who's He come to save? Who's He come to rescue? Who's He come to die for? His people. Who are His people? Good place to turn is John 6. John chapter 6 is one of those chapters that I think every Christian needs to take time and just read and it's one of those chapters, you get to the end of the chapter, and Jesus has taught, it's a long chapter, Jesus has taught for a long time, and it says He's taught all these things, and it, everyone left Him because of what He's been teaching. He looks at the disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? Are you guys leaving as well? And, uh, of course, that's when Peter says, we can't leave you. You're the only one with the words of truth. But, but the things that Jesus says in that chapter are, are hard for people to swallow. And it wasn't just hard for the people to swallow back then. It's hard for a lot of people, a lot of Christians even today to swallow, so much so that people generally don't even read this chapter or consider this chapter. Or sometimes what they do is they read this chapter and they just change the plain meaning of this chapter. They just twist it around and make it jump through hoops and get real limber with language and change meanings and words. This is a chapter I commend to all of you to read the whole thing and think about just the plain things that Jesus is saying Look at verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So let's just get this straight. 
what Jesus is saying here. God is going to give him, his son, a people. A people whom Jesus says, a people with certainty who will never be cast out. They will all, without any exception, be raised up on the last day. There goes the Arminian doctrine of conditional security. How do we know who these people are? We don't know who these people are. The only way we know who they are is when they come to Christ. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, Jesus said in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Who are the elect? Who make up the church? The whosoever wills. Whoever comes after God, you'd know if they genuinely are coming after God, it's because God has moved in them. God has done a work in their hearts. All the people whom the Father has chosen to give to His Son will come to Christ. They will persevere and they will go to heaven. The Father has a people whom He will save, not based on their works, not based ultimately on their willpower, not based on their decisions. It is solely based in His grace and the glory of His Son. He sent His Son into the world on this rescue mission to come and redeem them, to pay for their sin on the cross and to satisfy His wrath against them and bring them to heaven for everlasting communion. These are the people of God. Similar to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and I will lay down my life for the sheep. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. By this time we discover that God has designed this institution called the church and in the church there are these under-shepherds, they're called elders. They're to minister the word of God to the people. These under-shepherds, these elders, are called not to be the good shepherd, but to work on behalf of the good shepherd and to shepherd the flock of God. And this is exactly what Paul told the Ephesian elders. He's saying goodbye to them, and he's not going to come back to Ephesus again. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And the word there is where we get the idea of elders. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Whom did Jesus purchase with his own blood? The church, the believers, the elect, the whosoever wills. It's the same language Paul would use later. I've already mentioned Ephesians chapter 5, the bride. Paul said Jesus gave himself for the bride. He didn't give himself for everyone indiscriminately. He gave himself not for a potentiality, not to create a positive atmosphere. He gave Himself actually for the church, for His bride. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, He is the mediator, speaking of Jesus, He's the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So Christ was offered to bear the sins of everyone? No, of many. Who are the many? Verse 28, those who eagerly wait for Him to appear a second time. That's believers, that's Christians, that's the bride, that's His sheep, that's the whosoever wills, that's the elect. That's whom Christ died for. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, God demonstrates His own love toward us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So the blood of Christ actually, not potentially, actually, not theoretically, not hypothetically, not at all. It actually purchased redemption for all believers so that they stand justified before God. Revelation 5 is a wonderful eternal song that we sing in eternity. Listen carefully to the words. They sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people for God, and literally the word is out from every tribe and language and people and nation. He did not redeem every tribe and nation and language and people. He brought a people out of every nation and tribe and language and people. The blood did not ransom everyone. The atonement did not save everyone. But it saved a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. A sampling they came out from. These are His sheep. Now, there are other verses you can look to. In fact, you could just Google verses that support limited atonement. You could probably look up many things from good, credible sources. Uh, So we won't spend much more time there. I do want to say this. We can't do a study like this and then fail to look at the verses that sound like general atonement is the correct doctrine. To be intellectually honest, we have to consider verses that, at least at first read, feel like it's saying that when Jesus died on the cross, He died for every single human, and every single human sin was on Christ on the cross. Now, just like with the verses that support actual atonement, I'm not going to give you all the verses that talk about potential atonement. For the most part, the the verses that support what some people would say is general atonement or potential atonement, they sort of fall into two categories, under two headings. I call it world and all. World and all. The first place that a lot of people go when they think about general atonement is they go to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Similarly, you might go earlier in John's gospel to what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus. Remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For me, the verse that really got me to seriously consider general atonement was 1 John 2.2. He is the propitiation. Remember that word? He's a satisfaction for God's wrath. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what in the world do you mean by world? We're left with three options. The first option is to say that world means each and every last person, therefore each and every last person in the world will be saved. This is a doctrine, a false doctrine, a heretical doctrine called universalism, says that every single person from Mother Teresa all the way down to Hitler will be in heaven. Joy of joys. Now, you can't believe that and believe the rest of the Bible. I mean, Jesus very clearly taught about hell, very taught about people going to this place, uh, the judgment, people rejecting Him. Read the book of Revelation, you realize there are two destinies for people, heaven or hell. So you can't believe the rest of the Bible and be a universalist. That's why it is indeed a heretical teaching. So the second option interprets the world in the same way as the first option, that it means each and every last person, every individual. 
But, as I've said, the atonement is not actual, it is hypothetical or potential. Jesus paid for each and every person's sin, but the power of that atonement is not applied to them or is not actualized or activated them unless a person chooses to believe and has faith in Christ. That's general or potential atonement or universal atonement. Now, that's the second option for the definition of the word world. The third option is to understand that the word world doesn't necessarily mean each and every last individual. In fact, I just quoted from John, God so loved the world, a lamb who came to take the sins of the world. What does John, when John uses the word world, what does he mean? Does he always mean every last individual? John said there in John chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus came into the world and the world did not know him. So what you're telling me, John, the world meaning each and every last person, there's not one person in the world that ever knew him. And that can't be true. In the beginning of Simeon and Anna, beginning maybe even with Mary and Joseph. And now the millions, if not billions since then, of Christians who do know Christ. So John can't mean each and every last person when he says world in those verses. In John 12, the the Pharisees made a comment that the whole world was following Jesus. Did they mean each and every last person who inhabited the earth at that time? No. They did not even mean the majority of them. They just meant a lot of people, a sampling of people. Later on in John 12, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, rather I came to save the world. Again, did He save each and every last person? person? Did he, judge, did he not judge each and every last person? Now, that would be a big failed mission if the word world means each and every last person. What about John 17? Jesus is praying to God about the disciples. I ask that you not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world. Verse 18, you sent me into the world, and I sent them into the world. But I don't pray for the world. I just pray for those whom you've given me out of the world. So Jesus himself does not use the word world to mean each and every last individual. Once you discover this, it begins to make sense that the word world simply means human arena, the human enterprise, the generic broad scope of humanity. Because of the curse, that he can have that additional idea of world of sin, a world being under the curse of sin. And I think this third definition of world is best. It fits Scripture best. Something that may help you in those early years, those early Jewish Christians, and you know this if you study the New Testament, they struggled with believing that Christianity was not just a Jewish thing. And so the apostles really had to emphasize that Christians were coming in and flooding in from all ethnicities, from all over the world, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. The propitiation accomplished was was not just for Jews, and I think this is what John was getting at. It's not just for Jews. It's not just something that is a Jewish thing like the Old Covenant. This This is something that is for the world. This propitiation is available for everyone. There are people whose sins are propitiated who are not Jewish who are Gentiles. Again, I think the best way to interpret world there is the scope of the human enterprise, the generic, generic human arena, the nonspecific in terms of individuals. This is the broad idea of humans on earth. 
And what about the word all? That's the word world. What about the word all? Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, Christ died for all. Colossians 1.19 reads, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile, reconcile to Himself all things. Remember one time early in my ministry, we were talking about some of these things, preaching about some of these things, and a guy came up to me and said, Pastor John, all means all, and that's all all means. I think about that. I think what he was saying is, the only definition for the word all is each and every last, with no exceptions. Well, we know even in the English language that that's not true. Your kid is going to a concert. Mom, Dad, all my friends are going. You know they don't mean every person you've ever met or called your friend is going to be there. In fact, you don't even assume it's the majority of those people. You just mean, you know, it's a lot of people and it's a lot of their friends. We understand the word all doesn't have to mean each and every last. I think it's very similar to the word world or interpreted in the same way or in a very similar way the word world can be understood. It says of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter uh, 1, I believe, or 2 maybe, uh, that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region went down to see John the Baptist at the Jordan River. And you read that and you understand automatically, you understand that probably doesn't mean each and every last individual. It probably does not even mean the majority of those people. It just means a sampling of that broad spectrum of humanity. And it's a lot of people. The word all doesn't mean each and every last. It just means a, a large amount, a, a broad spectrum of all those people. That's why Matthew and Mark and Paul don't contradict one another. It says in Matthew 20, but also in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that Jesus gave His life as a ransom for many. But later on, Paul and Timothy would say, to Timothy would say, He gave His life as a ransom for all. Is it all or is it many? And I think if you understand the definition of the word all, it is a broad spectrum. It's not necessarily each and every last. It's a big sampling. But well, let's move along here. The bottom line is I think the Bible is clear. The atonement is, not, is actual. It actually fully paid for the sins of all who would believe. All the people who believe and who would believe and not for anyone else. It is at one minute. It actually creates at one minute atonement for people. It truly and fully propitiates God's wrath against His people, His sheep. It reconciles them. In the passages that sound like general atonement, I think usually it's a misunderstanding of the use of the words such as all or world. That is a brief scriptural case for actual atonement. Let me make a theological case for actual atonement. Of course, if it's to be theological, it has to be scriptural. So I think that's really the main, the first and main point. The first and main defense is that I think this, makes, this position makes most sense with Scripture, which I have shown already. Another theological or theological reason is that actual atonement limits the atonement not in power, but in scope. You understand that both sides of the argument 
believe in some form of limited atonement. If you believe in actual atonement, what you're saying is that it is limited in terms of its scope. It applies only to the elect. It applies only to those who will believe, the whosoever wills, the bride of Christ. If you believe in general atonement or potential atonement, you believe it is limited in terms of its power. It doesn't actually save anyone. It just creates a potentiality. It's limited in terms of its power. I prefer that first option. That it's not limited in power. It's limited in its scope. Third theological case for actual atonement is that it rejects the possibility that Jesus died for nothing. You see, if you believe in general atonement, you have to acknowledge that since it really all hinges on man's will, man's free will, untouched by God. Whether or not to accept Jesus, God had to have made it fully and truly possible that no one receives Christ. So there was a possibility, and it was outside of God's control, there was a possibility that Jesus died for nothing. The hinge point of all that God has done, according to people who believe in general atonement, according to the Arminian view, the hinge point is that everything that God has done is not according to His predetermined plan, but rather the hinge point is man's decisions and activity. Which means, incidentally, if man chooses to accept the atonement, he can then take some of the glory because in the end, he made that decision without God. It also means, listen very carefully, it also means that the difference between people in heaven and people in hell is that the people in heaven are just better. They just make better choices. It really was up to them. It wasn't God working in them. It really was up to them. And they chose rightly. And everyone else chose wrongly. We don't believe that. We believe we are no different in terms of holiness without God than anyone else. Only God can do something. Similarly, fourth argument for actual atonement it puts the power of atonement in the hands of God, not sinners. Again, this idea, this Arminian idea is ultimately that the power to atone is not God's power, it's man's power. Man is the one. You say, well, it's just a small decision compared to all that God has done. It's just that small decision. Yeah, but it's the most important decision whether or not that atonement is applied. One more idea, theological idea. If Jesus were to pay for the sins of unbelievers, His payment would need to be infinite. The people of God who are saved will commit a finite number of sins. Think about it. There is a point that your sin will come to an end, that you will be glorified, you will be brought to heaven and communion with God, you will no longer sin, you will no longer suffer the, your own sin or anybody else's sin. There's a finite amount of sin. And you think if God has a group of people whom He is saving, there's a finite amount of sin, and Christ paid for that sin on the cross. Not so for the unbeliever. You realize that people who don't believe in Christ, when they go to hell, they don't suddenly become righteous or suddenly have faith in Christ. They may realize that they have made a huge mistake. They've sinned greatly. 
but they don't get down to hell and start repenting. It's very interesting. You read the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man. The, the rich man does not get down to, to hell and say, you know, I repent, I give in, I want to worship you, you only. No, he's regretful. He knows what he's done is wrong. He, he's asking Jesus to get the message to his family members. He doesn't worship God. The truth is, when people get to hell, they're not going to suddenly worship God. In fact, they're going to continue to sin. And they will continue to sin for all of eternity and continue to pay for that sin. To tease this out then, God would need, not only need to eternally punish them, He would need to, if Jesus was paying for their sin, He would need to eternally punish His own Son. It would have to go on and on and on and on. It doesn't take a law degree to see that that's not justice to make Jesus pay and them to pay for the same sin, for the same wrongdoing. No, holy justice demands that Jesus died once, fully paying for the sin, satisfying God's wrath against a people who will one day stop sinning, a finite amount of sin. All right, let's get to the practical case for actual atonement. You can wake up now. Usually theologians land on three practical applications of limited atonement or actual atonement. The first application is worship. This doctrine ought make you well up within your heart. Realize that you are no different than any other sinner. It's just by the mercy and grace of God that you're saved. That it was God's grace and all grace. It was sola gratia. Peter prayed about that this morning. God's grace alone. Imagine with me if a few years ago you decided to work, you were working at McDonald's and you decided to, to save your pennies and after a few months you had $100 and you took that $100 and you heard about this brand new thing called, called Bitcoin and you went and you bought some Bitcoins. And by no activity of yours, by no real effort of yours over the last few years, you, you're a billionaire now. I mean, you have all this money and, and, and most of that, and 99.999 extending for many nines, it was not your doing. You had nothing to do with the market or Bitcoin or anything like that. But there is that one little thing you did. You saved your money. You worked hard and you, you bought the Bitcoin. And so there's a certain sense in which way back in the day you can actually pat yourself on the back. In fact, you probably would if you were a billionaire and saw the great investment you made some years ago. You probably would pat yourself on the back and say, you know, I made the right choice. I'm pretty good at stuff like that. On the other hand, what if someone came to you, gave you $100, and compelled you to buy Bitcoin? If you're a billionaire now, you would say, I had nothing to do with that. That was all that guy. He came up, he handed me $100, he influenced me and, and compelled me to give that $100 to this. The only reason, and the only reason, 100% of the reason why I'm a billionaire today is because that person did that. And well, this is the difference between general atonement and limited atonement. If you say, if you agree with general atonement, it means you agree with provenient grace, which means you agree with the idea of free will, which means you agree that at least in a very small percentage, you were responsible for your own salvation... There's at least part credit you can take. And the worship doesn't go all the way to God. With limited atonement, you can say it's God, all God, and nothing but God. Even my own decision to choose Him 
was something he did on my heart, a work he did. And it's not because I was righteous or better than anybody around me. It's simply because of his purpose of grace. So this causes you to worship him more than you ever have. It causes you to sing louder at church. It causes you to be more thankful, more grateful, more worshipful because of what God has done for you. Martin Luther said, the glory of the gospel is in personal pronouns. Jesus loves me, gave himself for me. Charles Spurgeon said that his whole theology is summed up in four words. Jesus died for me. Isn't that great? Makes you want to worship him. A second point of practical application is assurance. As you look forward to the day of judgment, isn't it wonderful to think, to know that your sin is entirely, fully paid for, satisfied by Jesus, God's holy justice would never exact more punishment upon you or anybody else because it was fully satisfied in what Christ did. There's no fear, no worry about falling away, no fear that God may arbitrarily decide to make you pay for your sins once again, even though Jesus already did. No, you can endure this world with joy and peace knowing that you're one of His. On top of that, think of the love of God. He, with the Godhead, planned this all out, creation, fall, atonement, redemption, eternity, and not because of you, but because of this massive plan that will not be changed. Your name is written in the book of life and will not be erased. You're one of the sheep. You have this great assurance. You can rest assured you are held eternally, not because of your power, not because of what you did, not because of your own decisions, but because of what God has done on your behalf. One more application, you may be surprised. This helps us in our evangelism. This helps us in our evangelism. You know, sometimes someone will say, in fact, I read a whole article that basically argued this, if you believe in limited atonement, you can't evangelize people because you can't tell people that Jesus died for them. Now, let me just say, if you think the only way to share the gospel is to tell people that Jesus died for them specifically, for their sins specifically, you haven't read the Bible very well. Speaking of Jesus' atonement like that, with that specificity, is not only unnecessary, it's never demonstrated to us in the Bible that that's how we're supposed to evangelize, that you have to go around, we're forced to go around and tell people, Jesus died for you specifically. You can say Jesus died for sinners, Yes. Believe and you will be saved. Yes, you can say that. Come you who are heavy laden, he will give you rest. Yes, you can say that. Repent and believe. Yes, you can say that. We're not forced and we don't have any examples in the Bible where we are forced to tell people that your sin specifically was on Jesus. And to actualize that, you have to believe. No, that is not demonstrated anywhere in the Scripture. Just tell them the gospel story. Tell them if they believe and have faith in Christ, follow after Jesus, they one of the ones whom God has predestined for salvation. They are the whosoever will who are predestined before time. The truth is, if you believe in general atonement, the actualization of the atonement rests on that person. Rests on that person saying yes to your presentation. And so then, suddenly, you're, you're sidled with this huge burden 
of trying to be convincing enough to get that person to say yes because here's this atonement that's, that's potential for them but not actualized until you convince them to say yes. And so it's all on you because if you don't convince them, they're going to go to hell. Well, what a burden. On the other hand, if you believe in limited atonement, you can mess up. You can fumble with the gospel, bumble your way through the gospel. You can misquote passages. But if that person is one of his sheep, they're going to believe. They'll come right into the kingdom in spite of your failed presentation. Why? Because the whole endeavor rests on him, not you. This takes the burden off you evangelistically. You can just share openly, freely the story of Jesus. You can tell them what it is to repent and believe. I love that parable In Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is like a man that should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. You get the picture. He sows and he sleeps. And I imagine he sleeps really well. Just sows a seed, leaves it up to God. I can hardly imagine how much pressure you must feel if you think a person's eternity rests in you, in your presentation, in your hands. Actual atonement, definite redemption teaches that there is no pressure at all. God has His sheep chosen before the foundation of time. Their sins are paid for. It is as good as done. You and I have no idea who these future sheep are. We have no clue. Could be our neighbor. Could be the most recalcitrant, rebellious, horrible person that you know. That could be one of His sheep. God has included us in His magnificent harvest, right? This magnificent rescue mission. We get to continue what Jesus started. We get to go out and collect His sheep. Go and tell. There's a guaranteed harvest. The people for whom Jesus died. Well, let's pray that this would encourage us to do just that. Father, we thank You so much for this wonderful doctrine. May it make us praise You and worship You like we never have before. Lord, may it be something that we believe in to give us assurance and joy. And Lord, may it compel us to tell the gospel, knowing that there is a guaranteed harvest for whom your son died. Bless us now as we go and seek to make disciples of all nations, knowing that from all these nations you have a people, your sheep. I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here who's not a believer, Lord, you would compel them, move in their heart, regenerate them so that they would understand the gospel, believe in Christ, and be saved today. We ask this in His name. Amen. All right, stand with me. I know it's been sort of a long morning. had to cram a lot of sermons into one. This benediction is based on that Revelation passage. Now may we go rejoicing that in God, that by God you have a redeemed people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that God has called us to worship, to obey, to proclaim His Son to the end of the age. Amen.